0: I want to look in uh, Matthew chapter 16, once again, Matthew 16. Just to introduce our, our text this morning, you know, uh, when, I was, when I was in uh, high school and uh, really through college, I lived with my sister and my brother-in-law for a little while. My brother-in-law's name was John, and, and we would play that game called Risk. Have you ever heard of that game before? It's a, it's a board game of world domination. Um, I, I thought I was pretty good at it, and uh, but we would play, and we would do this for hours. I mean, an entire Sunday afternoon would be taken up playing this game, and I don't know how he managed to do it every time, but every time, what he would do is, like, I'm, I'm just going all over the world conquering all these countries and, and all of this stuff, and I've basically got the whole world in my hands. I mean, you know, this is my, I'm, I'm the king, right? But what he would do is he would find this one little corner of the world that I wasn't even paying attention to, like New Zealand or something like that, or, you know, one of those places that nobody cares about. So, um, (laughs) but uh, anyway, I'm just kidding. I have friends in New Zealand, but um, anyway, so, and he he would build up these armies, like this massive force in New Zealand or Australia or Thailand or something like that. And I would always see it happening and I would try to counteract it, but he would always beat me until finally, he had enough force and I was spread out so thin that he had these massive armies in every country, he would just start, he just would walk across the earth. And it would be like my two armies against his 87 or something like that. I mean, And usually once he got to that point, within about 10 minutes, the game was over. And and he did this every time. And I don't understand. I mean, I would watch for it. I knew this was his technique. And yet somehow he would always get me that way. And you know, it's funny how sin works kind of in the same way. It finds this little corner of your heart and just kind of digs in. And sometimes you'll, you'll go through like kind of what we've all done. You'll go through like a like a rededication service, or you'll go through a revival service or something like that, and you'll say, okay, I'm finally getting rid of this, but it's still dug in in that little corner, and it's just kind of building up, building up, building up, and before too long, it starts to run across the surface of your heart, and it is taking over again, and again, and again. I don't know about you guys, but I have experienced that quite a bit in my life, and embarrassingly, too many times to tell, and that's kind of what we're looking at this morning with, uh, with Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. What are we looking at here? It is a discerning community. How can we discern? How do we have wisdom to discern those things in our hearts? How does that happen We've seen in the last few uh, uh, services, the last few chapters, that Jesus has been in a Gentile-dominated area. We saw him heal a Canaanite woman's daughter, and he kind of went with the thing through with her to, to build her faith and show her as an example of faith. And then he was in the Decapolis, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, that is a Gentile-dominated area, and we saw him healing crowds and all this, and then a massive crowd of, of 4,000 comes, and, and we see that miraculous feeding of 4,000 men, included, not including women and children who were there. And now he comes back across the sea again, and he comes back onto his home turf, and you would think that it would be a warm reception, but unfortunately, the religious leaders are there, and it's like they're just waiting to pounce on him just waiting to pounce on him, just waiting to accuse him, waiting for an opportunity to say, aha, now we've got you. And so he comes back to this area and this group of leaders immediately challenges him and to test him, they ask him to show them a sign to prove who he is. You know, you would think that they would welcome him back as a hero. You would think, I mean, he's turning Gentiles. I mean, you remember it said they glorified the God of Israel. You would think that he would return back a hero, a, a, a legend, but instead he comes back and they treat him as if he's a criminal. And you wonder, how does it get to that point? How did the nation lose their way so bad? And we could ask the same question today. How does a Christian lose their way so badly? How does a church lose their way so badly? Skipping down to verse six, you see that when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus sees this as an opportunity for a teaching moment. And he tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what's he talking about here? That leaven, this is an, kind of an old English word, to be honest with you. I'm not even really sure why the modern translations still use it, but it's not a word you very hear very often anymore, except in religious communities and stuff, but leaven is really just another word for yeast, and he's saying, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, the problem is the disciples thought that uh, they had forgotten to bring their daily rations over. I don't know. He just fed twelve. He just fed four thousand people. They had like twelve baskets left over. Apparently, they just forgot to put them in the boat. And so they 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 come over here, and now they realize that they're looking around. They're like, "Oh, all that food we collected, uh, we kind of left it on the other side, and now we're going to have to buy bread again." Jesus, again, sees this as an opportunity. You know, the, the yeast is one of those really funny things that once it gets in a little bitty corner of a dough of bread or something like that, it just spreads all throughout and it rises. And, and it's, a, it's a symbol that is often used in Scripture. In fact, in Matthew 13, we saw it as a positive thing of how the kingdom of God is gonna start off very small, really with just, really with just 11 men in a small uh, country in the ancient Near East, and yet that has literally spread all over the world and is continuing to do so. We saw it as a positive thing, but most of the time in the Bible, it is represented as a negative thing. In fact, in Galatians chapter five, verses seven through nine, Paul is criticizing the Galatians for you are allowing this kind of sin in your life. You're both, excuse me, that was uh, First Corinthians, uh, Second Corinthians no, first Corinthians. I'll get it right in a minute. But he's saying you're boasting about these things. You're, you're tolerating this sin and you're saying, oh, look how forgiving we are. Look how tolerant we are. You won't be, you won't be this or that when you come to our church. We sound a little familiar today. And Paul says that your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know that once that, that, that sin finds that little corner, it begins to spread and it begins to permeate all throughout the church if it's not dealt with. And so this morning, Jesus tells the disciples, beware, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, church, Beware, be on guard against the wrong kind of leaven. Beware against the wrong kind of yeast, lest it permeate our lives and our church. So how does he do this? Well, Matthew's gonna show us two warnings this morning. He's gonna record these two warnings that Jesus gives. Beginning, and, uh, and let me just go ahead and give you them since we don't have a PowerPoint, it's, We need to be on guard against perverse teaching, and we need to be on guard against wrong priorities. We need to be on guard against uh, perverse teaching and against wrong priorities. So beginning in verse six, Jesus says that watch out for this leaven, watch out for this yeast. Of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and and you kind of wonder what is he talking about? And and Matthew gives us verses one through four to kind of to kind of help us understand what it is that he's actually warning against there. And so we go back to those verses and ask ourselves, okay, what is this yeast that he's referring to? What is this thing that is so dangerous that we need to be on guard against? And so he comes up and he, as, as we mentioned a second ago, that when, as soon as he got on shore, these two representatives of these two religious groups were just waiting for him, don't even know how they knew where he was gonna be, but they're waiting and, I mean, they just pounce the moment they get there, the moment he gets there. Now, who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They, they are the two leading religious groups in Israel at the time. And it might be tempting to think of them as kind of Christian denominations, but, but don't think of them that way. Actually, they would, they would really relate more to political parties. So just, just imagine that a couple of Republicans and a couple of Democrats get together and they're pouncing on a common enemy, right? And that's what we, that's what we see here. That's kind of what's happening to help you understand And by the way, just like Republicans and Democrats, these two do not get along. They do not get along. The Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed on some of the most fundamental issues of the Jewish faith. The nature of Scripture, the nature of death, that whether or not there's even a resurrection. In fact, they got wrong, they, they didn't get along. So their, their hostility toward each other was so bad that Paul, in, in the book of Acts one time, uh, he actually just, uh, he's standing on trial uh, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are there accusing him and all he had to do was say one thing and the Pharisees and Sadducees started arguing with each other. <laughs> and, and Paul kind of, you know, just got sent back to his cell. So, I mean, totally distracted from what they were there for. All he had to do was just one thing got them fighting. I think that's where our kids learn that from sometimes, you know, so. But, you know, a common enemy makes for some strange bedfellows, don't it? Don't it? We saw this, and we see this in Luke chapter 23, when Pilate and Herod, these two were very political enemies, and yet when Jesus comes along, these two become friends, and they remain friends for the rest of their time there. A common enemy makes for some very strange bedfellows. And and so these two come up to him and they say, we want to see from you a sign from heaven. Show us who you are. We've already seen this. This This is the second time that the Pharisees are doing this. Back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, you may remember that they asked for the same thing. And Jesus gives them the same answer, practically word for word. You say, well, is that, a, is that a repeat? No, sometimes you're asked the same question and the answer doesn't change. And so you just give them the same answer. And so that's what's happening here. And so, but back there, it was scribes and Pharisees, really just some local priests, some local Galilean priests who to come together and say, We want to see a sign from you. Really, they were already plotting in verse 14 for a way to destroy him, to get rid of him. And so they're really looking for a way to accuse him. And he avoided it that time. But this time it's the scribes and it's the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the Sadducees were more the aristocracy of the Jewish life. They were the elite. And they were the rich ones. They were the the aristocracy family. In other words, Jesus is getting the attention of Jerusalem. And there's something more threatening about this group. That the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming together. The Sadducees come from Jerusalem. They meet up with the Pharisees. And they come together as Jesus gets off the shore. And they say, hey, you, front and center, Explain yourself. And I imagine in asking for a sign, they're probably thinking that in his failure to try one and do one, it will result in a public stoning. And, sent, and hence, they can get rid of Christ and be rid of this nuisance. So it's getting, it's getting serious. Jesus' enemies are growing. They're growing both in number and they're growing both in power and authority. And they do this not as a, again, not as an honest way to say, hey, we wanna know if we can believe in you or not. So show us something. They're not, no, 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 no. It says that they are doing this to test him. By the way, we've seen that word before too. In Matthew chapter four There was another one who approached Jesus to test him, to tempt him. That same term is used, and it is Satan. And so the challenge that the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing here is essentially the same challenge that Satan himself gave to Christ. Okay, you you say you're the son of God, prove it. Prove it. And what Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to do is to act independently of his father and reveal his glory apart from the father's will. And that's exactly what these Pharisees and Sadducees are doing now. They're they're tempting Christ in the same way that Satan tempted Christ. And just like Jesus says, you shall not test your Father who is in heaven. Beloved, Jesus will not be submitted to any man. Jesus will not submit himself to Satan. He will not obey our commands. He is not a genie in a bottle. He is not the force from Star Wars. He is not a magic mantra. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who does not bow to anybody. He all bows to him, to the glory of the Father. And this is what all false religion does. It's what it all does, from, from paganism to, to a demonic presence that we know as Allah. Any other false god is really just a demon masquerading as God. This is what all false religion does it says that you can bend God's will to yours. You can make God do what you want him to do. God is in your back pocket. He is a kind, old, gray-haired grandfather up in heaven who says, "I'm just so proud of you for everything you do. Just just call me. You never call me. Just call me." That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the God that we serve. And all false religion attempts to manipulate God to give us our way. And that is why in verses two and four, just like he did before, Jesus will not be bullied. Jesus will not be threatened. Jesus will not be any of these things. He tells them that a wicked and perverse generation seeks for a sign. You know how many Christian groups and Christian teachers are out there today Claiming that unless you're doing signs and miracles, there's no power to the gospel whatsoever. I wonder if they've ever read this verse. That a wicked and perverse generation, a a rebellious generation seeks for a sign. And besides, even if I gave you one, you wouldn't be able to read it anyway. Anyway. I mean, look at these guys, verses two and three. You can read the signs of heaven. You know when it's gonna be raining. You know when it's gonna be a fair weather. I, I gotta admit, I, sometimes I wish I were a weatherman because I, I know of no other job that you can be wrong so often and keep your job. <laughs> sometimes I think, man, they got it made. You know, tenure, faculty tenure, eat your heart out. That's a job that has job security, you know, <laughs> You can do this, you can can read the sky, but you can't read the things around you. You can't look at what all is around you, why? Because Romans 1 says, because they actively suppress the truth, even though they know God, they do not acknowledge him as God. They see everything that we see. They see all of the things on earth. They see all creation. All of it is a handiwork of God. All of it declares the glory of God. They see it all and they say, ah, it's just a cosmic accident. It's just a, a one in a billion, quadrillion chance. We're all just gonna end up in a shallow grave on a random floating rock in the universe and that's our destiny. That's our destiny. Boy, that's enough to give you hope, isn't it? Beloved, we they look at everything and they see what we see but they deny God. Why? Because the fool says in his heart there is no God. He doesn't have a mind problem. Some of them are some of the biggest geniuses to walk the planet. They don't have a mind problem. They have a heart problem. And they can read all the signs. They can accurately they can accurately determine the weather. But they see Jesus Christ and say, eh, he was just a good teacher. He was just a would-be prophet. He was just a zealot, whatever. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? There, that parable where the rich man is in torture, he's in torment. He asked Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. Please send, send and warn my brothers. And he says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, 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 no. You don't understand. If you'll send Lazarus back and let him warn them, then they'll believe a man who's risen from the dead. Oh, really? Jesus says, no, they won't. If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not believe, even if a man returns from the dead. You want proof? A little later, a man, ironically, named Lazarus, does come from the dead, and guess how they reacted? They wanted to kill Jesus, the one who, who, who raised him, and then they said, hey, while we're at it, let's kill Lazarus too. All the signs in the world, all the miracles in the world will not save a soul, but there is only one that matters. Jesus here refers to it as a sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? We talked about this last time, just very briefly, Jonah swallowed in the belly of a whale, or we assume it's a whale, a great fish. He's there literally describing it as a living death. And as he he repents of his sin, of his turning from the Lord, he is spat out, really vomited out of the great fish's mouth as a resurrection of sorts. And beloved, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only sign that matters to a lost person. That he died He was buried. He was really dead. He rose on the third day. And now he offers life to all who will believe. And it is in his resurrection that we have the hope of our resurrection. It is in his resurrection that we see the hope that we have. Saving faith, beloved, is both trust and submission. We're not rescued from our sin by bending, attempting to bend God's will to ours and getting him to do or approve whatever we want to do. They have the word, that is enough. We have the scriptures to create faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is enough. If they won't listen to the scriptures, then they won't listen to the greatest signs or miracles on the earth. They just won't. They just won't. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks for signs. You say, why is that? Well, let me give you an example. What if every time you asked your kid or told your kids that you were gonna do something or you said we're gonna do something, all they would look back at you and say, prove it. Every time. You try to tell me anything, prove it. Prove it. Prove it. You wanna have a you wanna have a lot of fun? Go to a seminary class sometime and just sit down, everything the prophet says says, I don't agree. I don't agree. I don't agree. <laughs> Makes for some really interesting class time. Let me ask you a question. Is that a sign of a loving child? No, that's a sign of rebellion. Or it's, a, or it's telling you something about you. I mean, it could be one or the other. Bottom line is, it's not a good thing, right? That's not a faithful, loving child. That is a sign of rebellion. Beloved, how many of us are doing that very thing with God? We're looking for signs. We're looking for things When in reality, we should be studying, meditating, reflecting, and following the word of God and walking by faith and not by sight. That's what we should be doing. I fear that some of us this morning might be doing that same thing, that very thing. No, you're not looking for miracles. You're not looking for parting waters. You're not looking for those kinds of things, but... Maybe you're asking yourself, do I have a peace about it? Beloved Jonah had peace about it. He was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. He had all the peace in the world. One of the the best, one of the most popular Christian authors in his book, won't mention names, but uh, it was a very purposeful book. He says, don't ever criticize something that the Lord is blessing. And of course, by blessing, he says, showing that's working. Can I remind you that Moses was instructed to speak to the second rock and he struck it instead, but water still came out? In other words, it worked. Just because it works doesn't mean that God's in it. Just because it works doesn't mean that God's in it. Beloved, we've got to be grounded in the word. We've got to be grounded in the scriptures. You can rationalize all day long and give yourself, work yourself into a peace about your disobedience to God. You can do that. We've all done it from time to time, haven't we? Of course we have. So beloved, we've got to be grounded. We've got to guard against false teaching. And then number two, we've got to guard against wrong priorities. That's, I think that's how churches and how Christians, Christians can kind of lose their way as they start giving in to false teaching and they start giving up to wrong priorities. And that's the warnings that we see here so, kind of funny, a little fascinating. Jesus says in verse six, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what do the Pharisees, uh, excuse me, what do the disciples think? Uh-oh, we're in trouble because we forgot bread. Uh, he's getting on to us. <laughs> you know, I, I just imagine this scene. They're di- they've disembarked. They're unloading the boat. And they look and they're like, dude, 12 baskets of bread. Did you get them? No, did you? No, did you? No, did you? Dude, there's 12 of us. How did we miss this? One basket per person, that's all it took. And yet we missed it. And then Jesus says, hey, beware the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. Oh no, not only do we need to go buy bread, but he's telling us where we gotta shop. <laughs> Don't buy bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees. By the way, they, uh, all rabbis had jobs, You know, you weren't a full-time rabbi. So most of them had side jobs and a lot of them would sell bread at their carts and stuff like that as a way to make income. And so the disciples just naturally assume, okay, uh, they were mean to Jesus, so let's boycott them. Boy, Christians love to do that today, don't we? Let's boycott them, (laughs) right? (laughs) And Jesus says, you guys... You know, he, he says literally, the words are you of little faith. Um, if I were translating this, I think I would just look at it and be like, guys, come on. He says, look what he says in verse eight. He says, why are you discussing among yourself the fact that you have no bread? This has nothing to do with bread. You want bread? I just fed twelve. 1000 people with or excuse me 9000 people with 12 little loaves of bread You were there You saw it You think I'm worried about bread if you want bread I can give you I can give you bread Bread's not the issue here. But the disciples were so focused. They were so caught up in this fact that, oh no, we forgot the bread. We, got the, we gotta get the bread. We gotta get the bread. We're gonna starve. We're gonna be hungry. We gotta get the bread. Let's get the bread down. Let's get the bread down. Yes, Jesus, beware the leaven. Got it. Let's go get that bread. Don't buy it from them, but we'll go get bread. We'll go get bread. Hey, stop it. They were so distracted by the immediate problem that they missed the bigger picture. They were so distracted by their what was immediately in front of them that they missed the spiritual lesson that Jesus wanted to give them. Do you see that? They completely missed the point. Christ is scolding them. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? I don't care about bread. I care about you be wearing the leaven of these aberrant religious groups. I care that you not get sucked up into the materialism of the Sadducees. I care that you not get sucked up into the, into the legalism of the Pharisees. That's what I care about. You want bread? I'll give you bread. It's nothing to do with this. Don't get so caught up in the everyday routine things that you forget about Christ. That you forget who we are in Christ. There's a what's the issue with this? There's a in fact turn here in Luke chapter ten. There's another story that is is quite similar to this, very popular with mary and and Martha. Jesus stops by these these good friends of his named Mary and Martha. This is a completely different context, but kind of the same thing we see going on here and I know there's uh there's kind of a tendency among teaching today to to kind of give Martha a break, you know to to kind of lift her up a little bit. And, and, I, and I get that, and I, and I understand that, but, but what Jesus says is, is pretty clear. In verses 40, um, Martha's doing all the work, all the housework, doing all the stuff that she has to do to, for guests that are in the house, all the societal, honorable things and stuff like that. Whereas Mary, her sister, who should have been helping her, is actually sitting at the feet of Christ and just communing with him, just learning of him. Martha at one point says, Jesus, hey, uh, hey, I'm doing all this work on my own. I'm hearing my wife in this. Um, <laughs> I'm here, I'm doing all this work on my own. Don't you care that there's a perfectly another able bodied person here to help me? Look what Christ says in verse 41. He says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, yes, but only one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion and will not be taken away from her. You see, we can become so distracted by the physical things that we, we have to do, the routines, all the little monkey work that we have to do and day to day to day that we fail to make time for the one thing that is essential. And that is to know Christ. To commune with Christ. Churches can do this. Look at Revelation chapter two. Churches can do this. Revelation written to the church at Ephesus. Man, I would have loved to have been a part of that church. A virtual who's who of early Christianity. Timothy was their pastor. Paul spent so much time there. And yet this is later on in the 90s. And Jesus, he he says in verses two through four, he, he, he encourages them for all these things they're doing right. Hey, you're doing this, you got this down, you got this down, you got this down. Man, you guys are doing good. But in verse four, he says, but I've got this one thing against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at the first. They're so busy, a good church, a strong church, a doctrinally sound church. I mean, that's one of the things that he encourages them is that you guys can't stand heretics. You, as soon as you recognize them, you get them out. That's great, but you're so busy doing that that you forgot something. You forgot your first love that you had for me. It's kind of like asking, would you rather have doctrinal soundness or would you rather have love in a church? It's kind of like asking, you're getting on an airplane, which one would you rather fly? When you go to Italy on Wednesday and the pilot says, uh, hey, uh, we're down a wing. Would you rather fly with the left wing or the right wing? What would you say? You'd say, get me out of here is what you'd say because a plane can't fly without both wings. You gotta have both your left and your right. Beloved, a church can't fly unless we have both love and truth. Love and truth. The churches can do that. We can, we can become so preoccupied in the programs and the administration and in the, in the, uh, the everyday things, the, 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 the life of the, of, the, of the local city, the, all of that stuff. We can become so preoccupied in the local, in all of the local bickering and stuff like that, that we forget the one thing that is essential for a church, that we glorify and honor God and that we commune with Christ Jesus. We can become so preoccupied in all these other things. Let me ask you a question. Now, just just think about this for a moment. What are some of the good things that churches can become distracted by? Think of all the churches that are just going haywire today. How did it begin because they got distracted and they forgot what was essential. Beloved, feeding the poor is a great thing. In fact, we need to do that more. Feeding the poor, helping out those who are needy, fighting for the cause of those who are being mistreated, helping those who have been oppressed. And I don't mean in the social justice, politically correct way, but I'm talking about wives who are being beaten by their husbands. I'm talking about people who are, who are being ravaged by the oppression of drugs and alcohol. I'm talking about men whose lives have been destroyed and yes, by choices they've made. And yes, we should be a beacon of hope for those people. People. We should be running to those people, not away from them. But in doing so, we cannot forget the one thing that is essential. We cannot become a social justice club. We can't become just another Kiwana club or another good works club. We've got to remember that it is our It is the gospel of Christ that makes us a church and nothing else. The world can do all of those other things. And quite frankly, sometimes they do it a little better than we do. Sometimes. But they cannot save a soul with their message. Only we can do that because we have the message that saves. And so what are some of the good things we get distracted by in life? You know, I, and this is the uh, slide I wanted to show you. If you've ever read a book called Pilgrim's Progress, aside from the Bible, it is the best-selling book of all time. Written by, I'm proud to say, a Baptist, early Baptist, Calvinistic Baptist named John Bunyan. He wrote it while he was in prison. Spent 12 years in prison. All he had to do was quit preaching. If he he agreed to quit preaching, he could be released. And for 12 years, he stayed in prison because he says, you let me out, first thing I'm gonna do is get on a stump right outside this prison, and I'm gonna preach. And he actually wrote this book on on rags, on toilet paper, essentially. And it is one of the best-selling books, actually the best-selling book aside from the Bible that's ever been written. And I really can't say it better than him. He has this section where... Christian, the main character, is asked, how does one turn back from God? What is the process and what that looks like? And here's what he says. He says, at first, you become preoccupied. Your thoughts are carried away. It may be with something good. It may be school. It may be seminary. It may be, it may be good things. It may be work. It may be family. But, but your, your thoughts are preoccupied. You turn your thoughts away from God. God. And eventually, because of that, you begin to neglect private duties. You're no longer in your prayer closet. You're no longer in the word on your own every day. And the more you begin to neglect your private duties, sooner or later, you begin to cast off your public duties. This is when you start only coming to church every now and then. This is when church is really no longer a priority anymore. This is when uh, local Bible studies and, and small groups and all of those things that you used to depend on for your growth and accountability, you begin to cast those off. And then you begin to shun the company of warm Christians. You begin to avoid them. And it's not too long after that that you begin to become a critic. You start to criticize Christians that you know. You start to poke holes in their faith, poke holes in their life. And as you do that, you begin to adhere and associate yourself with some, as Bunyan says, carnal, loose, and wanton men. In other words, you begin to associate with open sinners, rebels against God. You begin to change your preferred company you do that for too long, you start to practice some of their practices in private. You start to engage in private sin. And then the more you do that, the more you start to show those sins a little more openly. A little more openly. All of a sudden now, you're at the pride festivals. You're at those places. Start to show yourself. And then it's not long after that that your heart becomes completely hardened to God. All it started with was that preoccupation. It started with that preoccupation. To where you were busy doing other things, you neglected your private duties, you began to shun warm Christians, you began to cast off your public duties. You begin to poke holes, criticize warm Christians. And you begin to associate with other company. You start sinning privately and then you start sinning publicly and then your heart becomes completely hardened to God. That's how it happens. I can't think of any way to put it than that. So my question to you is, are you somewhere in that process this morning? Are you somewhere on that chain? Are you preoccupied? Are you neglecting your private duties and you know it? Are you beginning to shun your public duties as a Christian? Maybe you're already in that point where you're starting to criticize other Christians, poking poking holes in their faith and in their life. The the buzzword there is hypocrites. Hypocrites. Where are you in that process? What would God say to you in Revelation chapter two, verse five? He would say, remember from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Return back to God. Wherever you are in that process this morning, beloved, return back to God Make no mistake, it will be a fight. Your flesh will fight you with every ounce of ability that it has. Your friends will shun you. The people who trust you, who love you the most will tell you it's not necessary. Reject all of those things, repent them, and come back to the joy of your salvation that you had at the beginning. Come back to your private duties. Come back to church. Come back to the warm fellowship of Christians. And most of all, come back to setting your heart and your mind on the things above, not the things below. Turn back and you will find that the Lord is waiting there for you, graciously waiting for you to return. His grace is sufficient for even the worst of backsliding. His grace is sufficient for you. And so this morning, we are going to have a time of communion. I love doing this monthly because it's that regular reminder. It's that regular reminder, far more than four times a year. It's that regular reminder of the grace and the love that God has for us and that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever shall believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, we do ask you to withhold yourself from the supper, but we do encourage you to ask questions. Talk to any one of our members. What is this about? What in the world are you doing? And they will explain the gospel to you. I know, I know several people who got saved because they watched communion and asked questions. That's what it's meant to do. That's one of the things it's meant to do. And so as we come into this time of remembrance, I would invite you to once again return to the things you did at first. Return to your first love and return to Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today. Lord, if there is one here who does not know Christ as their Savior, I pray today would be the day that they would come forward, that they would ask questions, that they would receive your word. And Lord, if there is one here this morning that they are a Christian, they are a person who knows Christ, but they also know that their mind has been focused, their heart and their lives have been focused on other things. They saw themselves in that chain of distractions that Bunyan gave so many years ago. Lord, I pray now they would use this time to repent. They would use this time to be reminded of your love, and they would return to their first love. I want to ask our servants to come forward at this time.